Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you have watched your loved ones die. Some of you have buried children. Some of you have seen your jobs vanish, your fortunes vanish. Some of you have been victims of sexual abuse, maybe even right now. Some of you have been victims of divorce or abandonment or addictions. And in every case, you prayed that God would spare you of this, and he said no. My question is, where was God? Why didn't he spare you? Why didn't he keep your child alive? Or your spouse alive? Why did you lose your job? Why did they run out on you? Is it possible that the God that we pray to actually does not exist? Why would he put us through this? And if he does exist, maybe he's evil. That's what Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, said in his book, The God Delusion. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And those are his good qualities. I mean, if this God did exist, why would you worship him? I mean, what's this business about God killing the Canaanites? I mean, really? Either the God that we worship doesn't exist or he's evil. That's what Dawkins is saying. Sorry for that cheery opening. But ladies and gentlemen, what if your best arguments to doubt God show that he actually exists? What if your best arguments or reasons to doubt God show that he actually exists? Because I think that's exactly what's going on here. I think when atheists are arguing against God, they're actually stealing from God when they're arguing against him. And they do it in several ways. In fact, there's an acronym, CRIMES, that we have in our book, Stealing from God, and I think atheists claim that many of the things represented by these letters point to atheism, when my contention is none of these things would exist unless God existed. They include causality, reason, information, morality, evil, and science. Atheists say these things show atheism's true. In reality, these things show that God exists. You say, how can that be? Well, we unpack it in the book, Stealing from God. We can't go through it all here this morning, obviously. We're just going to zero in on one issue, the issue of evil. We're going to ask the question, if God exists, why is there evil? And we're going to try and do it in three steps. First step is, does evil disprove God? Because you hear people saying there's too much evil in the world, so there can't be a good God. The second question, 
we're going to try and answer is if evil does not disprove God, what purpose is evil? Why does God leave it around? Why does he allow it to continue? What purpose could he have for allowing evil? And then the final question is, what's God's solution to evil? Now, I need to warn us all about one thing in here today, and that is evil is not just a problem for the head, but it's also a problem for the heart. So if you're going through a lot of pain and suffering right now, what I might say this morning might not resonate with you. You don't need a philosopher, you need a pastor when you're going through difficulty, and unfortunately, Pastor Mike is on break right now. So I'm the philosopher. But I will say this, that if you're going through pain and suffering, the first step to a recovery is for you to intellectually understand that God has a reason for the pain and suffering you're going through, even if you never find out this side of eternity what that reason or reasons are. So what I'm going to try and do is give you some reasons why it might be happening. But the first question we're going to answer is, does evil disprove God? Are you guys ready to go? There's a few more than the 9 o'clock, but still not very good. All right, so let's start here. Whenever you're talking about a big issue like this, I think you need to get the big picture. You need to go up to 30,000 feet and look around. And in order to do this, we're going to list evidence that God exists on the left and evidence he doesn't on the right. Okay, now I don't have time to actually defend all of the evidence I'm going to put up here. I'm just going to draw conclusions. Uh, but we did it, actually, some of this we did in the women's conference this weekend. Uh, how many people were at the women's conference or were somewhere else at the time? All right, how many of you are here right now? All right, how many don't respond to surveys? Three out of ten don't respond to surveys. Okay. I'm just going to list them, okay? They're in the books if you want to go into detail. First, evidence God exists at the beginning of the universe. Space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing. Even atheists are admitting this. Well, if space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing, whatever created space, time, and matter can't be made of space, time, and matter. In other words, the cause must transcend space, time, and matter. The cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent. Sounds like God, doesn't it? Yes. The fine-tuning of the universe. The universe is so fine-tuned in so many parameters that if you were to change any one of them, just imperceptibly, we wouldn't be here. It looks like somebody designed this universe. Also, the information found in DNA, in every one of your 40 trillion cells, there's a software program 3.2 billion letters long. All the letters are in the right order. I don't know about you, when I see software, when I see a program, I know there must be a programmer. If there's design, there must be a designer. Also, life itself appears to be design. Consciousness and free will, the very ability that we can ascertain truths about the real world, that we have the freedom to make choices is better explained by God than it is explained by molecules bumping into one another, which is what atheists believe. In fact, many atheists today deny there's free will. They deny there's consciousness. In fact, Daniel Dennett, one of the famous atheists, said, that consciousness is an illusion. One wonders if he was conscious when he said that. <laughs> also, intelligence and reason, the ability we have to reason, that we can get outside of our skulls and ascertain truths about the real world and then draw valid conclusions about the real world. Our minds work not because they're put together by non-intelligent processes, but because they're made in the image of the great mind. 
Also, the laws of nature. Do you ever ask yourself, why are the laws of nature so precise and consistent? Why do they exist at all, the laws of nature? Do you know that everything physical changes, but the laws that govern everything that's physical don't change? At least they don't appear to. Why is that? Because the universe was put together by a mind, and it's sustained by a mind right now, an orderer. Also, objective morality, the idea that certain things are right and other things are wrong. Murder's wrong. Love is right. If there's no God, that's just your opinion against, say, Hitler's opinion. There's got to be a standard beyond us that grounds what true rightness or goodness is. And unless God exists, there's no such thing. Yet we know that goodness and truth exist and righteousness exists, so God must exist. Also, Old Testament prophecy and the resurrection and other miracles in the New Testament that I think you can show by historical investigation really happen. This is good evidence that God exists, and it's the Christian God. What's the evidence that God doesn't exist? The biggest piece of evidence, people say, is evil. There's too much evil in the world, so there can't be a good God. Now, is evil an argument against God? At least three people say no. Actually, no, evil is actually an argument for God. Why? Because objective evil presupposes objective good, and objective good requires God. You say, what do you mean? Because evil does not exist on its own. Evil only exists as a lack in a good thing. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a good body, you've got a better body. What happens if you take all the body out of the cancer? It doesn't exist. can't exist. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of a car, you've got a better car. What happens if you, if you try and take all the car out of the rust? doesn't exist. Evil can only exist as a parasite in a good thing. A totally moth-eaten garment is a hanger. It doesn't exist. So while evil is real, it can only exist in a good thing. And if it can only exist in a good thing, then goodness exists as the essential part of reality. And any deviation from goodness would be what we would call evil. Now, this was not lost on C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist early on in his life because he went through World War I, the terrible war. And for a while, he thought there can't be a good God because there's too much injustice in the world. And then one day, he had an epiphany, and he wrote it in the book Mere Christianity. How many people in here have read Mere Christianity? Okay, if you haven't read Mere Christianity, consider yourself undereducated. You need to read Mere Christianity. And here's what Lewis said about that in the book, Mere Christianity, basically that evil requires good and good requires God. Here's how he put it. He said, and as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, there can't be a crooked line unless you know what a straight line is. You wouldn't know what injustice was unless you knew what justice was. Something can't be immoral unless something is. Something can't be not right unless something is. And that presupposes God. Otherwise, everything's just a matter of opinion. So, evil does not disprove God. It may show there's a devil out there, but it can't disprove God. You could look at it this way as well. The shadows prove the sunshine. In order to have shadows, you have to have sunshine. In other words, in order to have evil, you have to have good. Oh, you can have sunshine without shadows. You can have good without evil, but you can't have shadows without sunshine. You can't have evil without good. 
if evil exists, and everybody knows it does, then God must exist. Because if there is no God, there, that means there is no good, which means there is no evil. And even Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist I quoted a minute ago, actually agrees that if there's no God, there's no right or wrong, there's no good or bad, there's no just or unjust. In fact, here's, here's his famous quote on this. He says, if atheistic materialism is true, in other words, if we're just all moist robots, there is no spiritual realm, everything that happens just happens through the laws of physics, here's what he says. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get lucky and other people are going to get, or some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason nor any justice. There is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows, knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. If he's right, you're just like a Coke can fizzing. You're not really a sentient being, you're just a molecular machine. And there's no good, there's no bad, there's no justice, there's no right, there's no wrong. Now, wait a minute. You might be thinking, wait, wait, isn't this the same guy that just said this? Notice right in the middle of this quote, he called God unjust. He just got done telling us there is no justice. Wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. Where's he getting this concept of unjustice from? He's stealing it from God. He has to sit in God's lap to slap his face. On one hand, he's saying there's no justice. On the other hand, he's saying the God of the Bible is unjust. You can't have it both ways. You know there's justice and injustice, so God must exist. So to sum this up, the existence of evil doesn't indicate the absence of God from the world, but the absence of him from our lives. We're the ones that brought evil into this world, and now we're paying the price. So let's go back to our two-column chart right here. Evil should actually not be on the right side. We need to move evil over to the other side. Because evil is actually an argument for God, not an argument against God. But we're still left with the question, okay, it doesn't disprove God, but what's the purpose of evil then? God hasn't ended it. Why does he allow it to continue? Probably about 15 years ago, I was at Michigan State University. We go to colleges and we do I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentations. And uh, I was going through the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation at Michigan State. And there was a militant atheist in the audience. And I knew he was a militant atheist in, in the audience because he sat through the entire two-hour presentation looking like this. I mean, he didn't crack a smile once. And I had some pretty good jokes in there. Anyway, as soon as I was done speaking, I said, are there any questions? And his hand shot up over here, and I said, yes, sir. And he said, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? I said, sir, that is an excellent question. Maybe because if he did, he might start with you <laughs> and me, because we do evil every day. Do you ever notice when we complain about evil, we're always complaining about somebody else? Hey, God, why don't you stop him? Hey, God, why don't you stop her? We never say, God, why don't you stop me? Because if God wanted to stop evil, he might just start with me. He might just start with you. In fact, if God were to stop evil tonight at midnight, would you still be alive at 12.01? I wouldn't be. So I said, actually, sir, that is a really good question, and we could take semesters to talk about it, but we don't have semesters. So 
I have a way of, of showing you a lot in a short period of time via this one minute and 46 second video. It's not going to answer the problem completely, but it'll give you a good doorway to an answer. So I showed him this video. And I'm going to show it to you right now, okay? Same video I showed at Michigan State. It's one minute and 46 seconds. You've got to pay attention. A lot going on. You ready? Here we go. Is God good? If he is, why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies and subatomic particles and rainforests and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle or a one-ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? Freedom's a good thing, but if humans are to be free, they cannot be forced to obey God because freedom without choice is like a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. And God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours. Now, if you want to see videos like that on our website, crossexamine.org, you can see some, also our YouTube channel, two words, crossexamine. That particular video was put together by a friend of mine, Jim Zangmeister, who went to our, our seminary in Charlotte, Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he's made a number of those. If you type in, is God good in YouTube, you'll find that. And there's a bunch of other ones that he's done for Dr. William Lane Craig. You can find them on his website. Anyway, the main point of that video, as you saw, is that evil exists because we have free will, which is the only way that love could exist. So God gives us free will so we could love, but it also opens up the possibility for evil. And we do do evil, we sin. Now, after I showed that video, how do you think the atheist looked? He, uh, he looked uh, like this. <laughs> he said, okay, I can see how free will has something to do with it, but that can't explain everything. What about babies? Why do babies die? They didn't do anything wrong. No free will there. I said, sir, in order for us to figure out why a particular thing happened in life, we have to know what the purpose of life is. Because you can't know the purpose of a particular thing in life unless you know what the overall purpose of life is. So since I had just gone through the evidence that Christianity was true, that the Bible was true, I asked the audience, what's the purpose of life? So what is the purpose of life? This is the interactive portion of the program. <coughs> what is the purpose of life? <coughs> I hear people say, glorify God. Where's that in the Bible? That's the Westminster Confession. I mean, it's true. I'm just saying, where would you go scripturally to point that out? I think 
One of the clearest ways of pointing out what the purpose of life is, is what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 when he's praying about us, the believers. And here's what he says as he's praying to the Father. This is eternal life, that they, meaning us, may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. Now, not just intellectually, right? James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? You guys are sharp this morning. He says even the demons know that God exists, but they tremble. Do you realize the demons know that God exists better than we do? But they don't trust in him. They just know it intellectually. They don't repent. They can't. They're fixed, but we can repent. We can know God in a relational way, and then we can make him known. The second half of this, of course, is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he didn't say make believers. Make disciples. So the purpose of life is to know God, grow in God, and make God known. Here's the problem. Knowing and growing in God often requires pain. C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said that God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Sometimes you only look up when you're on your back. You're not interested in God until something goes wrong. And then suddenly you go, oh, maybe I don't have it all together. This is why Jesus said it's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven. Why did he say that? Because when you're rich, you think you can control everything. And then as soon as you realize you can't, then suddenly maybe God becomes more real to you. Now, thankfully, he didn't say it was impossible for a rich man to get into heaven because if that were the case, none of us would make it. According to, America, according to the world, we're, we're all rich here in America. And, of course, the scriptures talk about the value of pain and suffering. James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Question, ladies and gentlemen, how many people count it all joy when you get into various trials? Crickets. Right? I want to get out of it, don't you? He says you got to do this because your testing of your faith produces patience. You, you become more like Jesus when you go through this. Paul in Romans 5 says, we also glory in tribulation. How many people in here glory in tribulation? Can I see your hands, please? You're a liar if your hand's up. None of us do. But that's what Paul says, glory in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. We need difficulty in our lives. We need people to say no. We need trouble. We need obstacles. If not, how do we, how do we become? In fact, let me ask you this. What would happen to you if you got everything you wanted every time? I know. I would become even more of a moral monster than I already am if I got everything I wanted all the time. I mean, what do we call kids who get everything they want? Spoiled. What makes them spoiled? What's spoiled? Their character's spoiled. If you want to ruin a kid, just give him everything he wants. You will ruin them. You need difficulty. You need people to say no. You need trouble to come in your life. If you don't, you're not going to become more like Jesus. You're going to become more like a demon. Like a self-entitled celebrity. Who, if he doesn't get his water at 41.6 degrees, he's pitching a hissy fit. And in fact, if you think about this, some virtues can only be developed through evil and trial. It's really hard to develop courage unless there's danger. It's hard to develop perseverance without obstacles. Hard to develop compassion unless someone is suffering. 
really hard to get patience without tribulation. Now, I'm a very impatient person, and I've been praying for patience for quite a while, and frankly, I'm getting tired of waiting for it. <laughs> By the way, never pray for patience. What's going to happen if you do? Everything will go wrong all week. No character without adversity. And no faith, meaning trust, without need. If you think you've got it all squared away and you don't need anybody, you're not going to trust in God. You're going to think that you're going to do it your, your own way. You know, the problem with the self-made man is that he worships his creator. That's the problem. We need difficulty. We need trouble. And I know this is going to sound trite, but it's true. No pain, no gain. Actually, that's, uh, that doesn't go far enough. The real truth is more pain, more gain. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He's wrapping up a little section on suffering, and here's how he wraps it up. He says, For our light and momentary troubles here on this earth are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, the difficulty you go through here enhances your capacity not only to enjoy God now, but also in eternity. Now, it's hard to communicate this in an analogy, but I'll give you kind of a trite analogy since most of us understand sports in here. Um, I'll give you a sports analogy that I think this is communicating. I grew up in New Jersey. Forget about it. So I grew up as a New York Giant fan. And in 2004, the New York Giants traded with the San Diego Chargers to get Eli Manning number one in the draft. And the first few years in New York, he wasn't very good. And in fact, when your name is Manning, your brother is Peyton, you're selected number one, and you're not very good, and you're playing in New York, you're going to hear it, right? So he took a lot of grief his first few years. And then in 2007, he had a pretty good year. He got his team to the playoffs. And then he wound up beating three favored teams on the road to get to the Super Bowl. One of those favored teams he beat on the road was the hated Dallas Cowboys. In fact, we have a saying in New Jersey, it goes like this. Whenever the Cowboys win, it's living proof that Satan is alive and well. The problem was Eli and the Giants were going up against the 18-0 New England Patriots, who already had a book, 19-0 written. All they had to do was put the, the final score on the last page. They were going to be the, uh, the greatest team of all time. They were favored by 12 points. The only people that picked the Giants were the Giants. In fact, before the game, in the media day, they went up to Plexico Burris, who was a receiver for the Giants, and said, Plexico, what's going to be the final score? And Plexico said, we're going to win... 21 to 17. And then the media guy went over to Tom Brady and said, Plexico said the Giants are going to win 21 to 17. And all Brady said was, oh, we're only going to score 17 points? Okay, because they had set records that year for scoring points. So he thought that was a ridiculous prediction. Anyway, then they actually played the game. Giants had a really good defense. They sacked Brady five times, which he didn't like. Turns out it's a pitcher's duel. Two minutes to go, Patriots ahead, 14-10. Eli has to take his team 80 yards to win. He's about to go down under a shore sack because he's normally a statue back there. But somehow he spins out of the sack. He throws a Hail Mary pass over the middle of the field, and it's caught by a guy by the name of David Tyree who pins it up against his helmet. 
know if you remember this place. Some of you are old enough to remember this. And uh, he walked off the field. They have all this on video. This guy happened to be a Christian. He walked off the field and he said, hey, man, this is supernatural. And then he didn't catch another pass the rest of his NFL career. Okay? A couple of plays later, Manning hits Burris, the guy who predicted the score in the end zone, with 35 seconds to go. The Giants win 17-14. to 14. The Patriots don't even score 17 points, and Tom Brady was deflated. Some of you will get that tomorrow. And then Eli and the Giants beat the Patriots four years later again. Now, what's the point of all this? After the Super Bowl, Eli held up the Lombardi Trophy, and so did the third-string quarterback who hardly played it down all year. But question, did Eli enjoy the celebration more? Of course he did. Why? Because he'd been in the game the whole time, the whole season, the whole career. He was told he couldn't do it. He played through injuries. He played through difficulty. He played through people who said he, he could never win the big game. So. By going through all the difficulty, he actually enhanced his capacity to enjoy the reward when it came. The third-string quarterback who hadn't been in the game, or any of the games most of the year, was, he was happy to be there, but he didn't enhance his capacity enough to really enjoy it as much as Eli. That's what goes on here. When you go through difficulty, you're enhancing your soul. You're growing your soul. When you get everything you want, you're shrinking it. And this is what I think Paul is saying, that our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us a greater glory that far outweighs them all. And when you go through difficulty, it will lead to a greater good. In fact, this is what the scriptures say, that suffering will bring a greater good. Paul actually says this in Romans 8. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice how he doesn't say all things are good. No, there's a lot of evil out there. He's saying that all things work together for good. So when somebody says, why do babies die? Well, I can say, I don't know. I know why babies die in general because we, we live in a fallen world. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if uh, you couldn't, you were indestructible till age 70. Imagine, imagine if that, that were the case. I don't know about you, but I think we'd be incredibly reckless until 69 years and 11 months, right? And then we go, I guess we got to get serious about this thing, right? No, we live in a fallen world. I know why there's evil, and I know why people die now. But if you're going to ask me why does a particular baby die, I don't know why that particular baby dies. But I know why I don't know why. Because I'm finite, I'm inside of time, and God is outside of time. He can see the end from the beginning. He can see how it can all work together. Now, after I explained all this at Michigan State, how do you think the atheist looked? He, uh, he looked like this. He said, that doesn't explain it all. Okay, I can see how some evil can lead to good. I can get, but there's some evil out there that has absolutely no good that results from it. It's what philosophers call gratuitous evil. There's no good that can ever come from it. So I said, sir... How could you know that? You'd have to be God to know that. Now, it is true. If life just ends at the tomb, yeah, there's a lot of evil that probably has no ultimate good to it. There's no justice, right? 
There are many people that go to the grave who have committed crimes that have never been punished. Many rights are not wronged. There are many goods that never arrive because if life ends at the grave, it's not, there's no resolution. But what if life doesn't end at the grave? What if it goes beyond the grave? Then what? This is what Paul's saying. We need to have an eternal perspective. I've been struggling with evil, the question of evil for a long time until I discovered one thing called the ripple effect. What's the ripple effect? That everything that happens today ripples forward into the future to affect billions if not trillions of other events. In fact, think of the ripple effect in your own life. I mean, let's just think about your parents. Your parents had to meet for you to be here. And then their parents had to meet for them to be here and you to be here. And then their parents had to meet. Think about all the ripples that went into you sitting here right now. Some of those ripples were good. Some of those ripples were bad. But God can bring good from evil even when we can't see it. Why does a particular baby die now? I don't know, but I know why I don't know why. Maybe a particular baby dying now ripples forward into the future to somehow create 500 years from now a great evangelist who saves millions of people. That baby dying contributed to that great evangelist. I can't see that. I'm, not, I'm inside of time, but God can see the end from the beginning. This is why he can bring good from evil even when we can't see it. This is the ripple effect. Now, the Bible talks about the ripple effect, but not in these words. In fact, you remember Joseph from the Old Testament? Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers who don't like him because he's dad's favorite. And then he winds up in Egypt, and he's falsely accused in Egypt, but then somehow he works his way into prominence in Egypt, and he puts a lot of grain aside. And then his family, many years later, leave Israel to escape a famine. They come to Egypt to escape the famine. And as soon as Joseph sees them, as soon as he recognizes them, these are the people, his family, that sold him into slavery. What does he say? You dirty rats, you're going to pay for what you did to me. No. no, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Here's what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He could actually see the ripple effect. The very people that did evil to Joseph, that evil rippled forward to help them later. Now, of course, we don't do evil so that evil or good will result, but sometimes God shows that to us, showed it to us in this passage right here. So the bottom line to the whole thing is that while respecting free choice, God can bring good from evil, even when we can't see it. Now, when people often bring up this problem of God and evil, they normally say this, that God is all-loving and all-powerful. If he's all-loving and all-powerful, why does evil still exist? What they say is, He's either not all-loving, or he's not all-powerful, or he's neither, because evil still exists. But you know what people are forgetting when they try and say this? Yeah, God is all-loving. Yeah, God is all-powerful. They also forget that God is all-wise, that God is all-knowing. He can see the end from the beginning. He can see how all the ripples come together. One of the most profound things ever said on this topic was said by a Roman Catholic priest about 150 years ago 
at Notre Dame in, in France, in Paris. And here's what he said about this issue. He said, if God would concede me his power for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. God knows the end from the beginning. We don't. Ripples can go forward to places we have no concept of. So when some, something evil takes place and you go, I can't see any good coming from this. Of course you can't see any good coming from it. You're a speck in time. God sees how it all works together. So I explained all that at Michigan State. We're still there. And then about 10 feet from the atheist, a man raised his hand. So I said, yes, sir. So he said, I know of a woman who was raped. And he looked over at the atheist. And he looked back at me. And he said, this rape nearly destroyed this woman. In fact, she became pregnant as a result of the rape. But she decided that she was not going to punish the baby for the sin of the father. She decided to bring this baby to term. And his voice started to crack. And he said, this baby was a boy who grew up to be a man and actually became a pastor. By this time, he's crying in front of everybody. And he said, this pastor has led a lot of people to Christ and has discipled a lot of people in Christ. And that pastor is me. And then he looked over at the atheist and he said, if my mom can bring good from evil, so can God. And I said, you're dismissed. <laughs> I mean, how could I add to that? He had a better way of saying it than I did. So how do you think the atheist looked after that? He ran away. He was gone. Literally, that was it. He ran out the back door. But I went to the pastor, and I said, um, what's your name? He said, my name's Gary Bingham. I'm a pastor in Marion, Indiana. He had driven to Lansing that night. And he said, um, I'm a pastor up there. And I said, well, how's your mom? And he said, well, she's doing a lot better now than when she was because, or, or, than, or than she was originally because four years ago she became a Christian. And I said, well... Obviously, what your mom did has rippled forward to bring so much good through you, and it actually is even rippling forward tonight because you just told that story to everybody else here. And by the way, it's rippling forward to this morning because I'm telling the story to you, and it's also in the book Stealing from God, so it keeps rippling. So... What about God's solution to evil? We know that evil does not disprove God. We know that God has a purpose for evil. What's God's ultimate solution? Before we get into this, I need to ask you a question, and here's the question. Does God promise to protect Christians from evil and suffering? No. Here's a painting of Peter being crucified upside down. You know, many of the apostles died brutal deaths for saying Christianity was true when they could have said, spare me, <laughs> it's not true. In fact, take a look at all of the people up here, these biblical characters. What is the common thread running through all these biblical characters? 
All of these biblical characters have suffered tremendously, some of them to the point of martyrdom, martyrdom, including Jesus, who was the only innocent one up there. Why do we expect better treatment than the perfect Son of God got? Because you, you know, there's people out there saying in the Word of Faith movement saying, if you're not healthy and wealthy, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's easily disproven by one simple observation. Jesus and the apostles weren't healthy and wealthy. Don't tell me they didn't have enough faith. I mean, that's stupid. To say if you don't have enough faith, that's the reason you're not healthy and wealthy. No. We're not healthy and wealthy because of sin. We're not healthy and wealthy because we live in a fallen world. And no, you just can't have enough faith and decide you're going to heal everybody. That's why Pastor Mike was up here a couple of weeks ago taking Q&A, and he said, you know, there are no 300-year-old Pentecostals. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, if you, could, if you had the power to heal everybody all the time, why wouldn't you just do it to everybody, including yourself? Grandma, 612 years old, you keep praying for her. Let her go to be with Jesus. Knock it off. <laughs> this is not heaven. Yet. Now, don't get me wrong, we ought to be praying for people to be healed, but it's not in our power. It's God's power. One day this will be heaven, though. God's going to remake the heavens and the earth, and we're going to have physical bodies, resurrected bodies that won't break down. But the question still remains, what's God's solution to evil? You know what God's solution to evil is? He suffered himself. He took evil upon himself. Do you know the entire Christian story is the answer to the problem of evil? That's what it is. And it's the only worldview that can answer it. That yes, evil exists, but God has entered the bloodstream of humanity to allow the people that, that tortured him to be reconciled to him. Because he took their sin, our sin, on himself after living a perfect life. So the solution to evil is Jesus. He takes it upon himself, and his pain can be our gain. I say can be. Why? Because if you don't want to accept what he's done, you don't have to. Another event at Michigan was the University of Michigan. I was debating an atheist by the name of Eddie Tabash. And Eddie asked me this question during the, an interactive por portion of our uh, debate. He said, Frank, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She lived a life full of pain and suffering. Toward the end of her life, someone offered her the gospel, but she rejected it, and then she died. Is she in hell right now? Pretty tough question. So I said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is now. I don't know if she had a deathbed conversion, but if she didn't accept Jesus before she died, then God is too loving to force her into heaven against her will. You see, the assumption behind the question is that everybody wants to go to heaven. That is not true. Who's in heaven? Jesus is in heaven. There have been people running from Jesus their entire lives. What's he going to do in the afterlife? Going, hey, where are you going? Get over here. You're with me now. <laughs> How would that be loving? You say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. what's all this business about hell? I used an analogy with the uh, University of Michigan audience. I'll use it with you as well. Uh, this is a question for the ladies. Ladies, here's the question, ladies. Have you ever had a man pursue you whom you did not want to date? Some of you are going, yeah, and he's sitting next to me right now. 
He will not leave me alone. Whenever I ask that question, the ladies always giggle and the men look at their shoes. Is she looking at me right now? Well, ladies, suppose this man keeps asking you out, he keeps asking you out, and uh, you're not really interested, so you say, look, I like you, but only as a... Ladies, why don't you just stick the knife in and turn it? Every man has heard the dreaded friend rejection. Gentlemen, if you ever get the dreaded friend rejection, move on, she's not interested. In fact, I have some shocking news for you, she doesn't even like you as a friend. Ladies, am I right? Yeah, you're just trying to be nice, aren't you? No, if you, were, if you liked him as a friend, you'd be interested, but you're not. Well, suppose this doesn't deter this guy. He keeps asking you out, he keeps asking you out, and he finally says, look, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Ladies, run, screaming from the building. Can he do that? Can he force you to love him? No, love must be freely given. So if he truly did love you, if he truly did seek the best for you, what would he do? He would leave you alone. That's what God does for us. He sends us cards, letters, and flowers. He sends us creation. He sends us conscience. He sends us Christ. He sends us the Bible. He sends us Pastor Mike and the entire team here. He sends us Compass Bible Church. He may, if you're a Muslim in a far-off land, even send you a dream or a vision. And if you all say, no, 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 I don't want you, God will give you up to your own desire. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. That if you suppress the truth long enough, God's going to give you up and let you go your own way. Because that's what a loving being does. He doesn't force himself on you. And that's what hell is. It's separation from God. You say, what could be so bad about separation from God? Well, think about it this way. Everybody right now, whether you're a Christian or not, you experience some of the common grace of God. Whether you're a Christian or not, you experience love, relationships, uh, hope for a future, you know, as rain falls on the just and unjust. We all experience some of this, right? But I want you to imagine a place where there is no love, where there are no relationships, where there is no hope, where there is no future. There's just stone-cold, narcissistic self-absorption. That is Washington. Actually, that is hell. You're sep and it's Washington. You're separated from the ultimate source of goodness by your own choice, and you don't want to be separated from the ultimate source of goodness. God will leave you alone. You'll be punished at the right level of punishment you deserve, and you will be separated. So the question is, would a loving God send you to hell? No, you're going to send yourself there. Look, you don't go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. You go to hell because you've sinned. To say, like, oh, God's going to send me to hell because I don't believe in Jesus. No, that would be like saying, uh, I die because I don't go to the doctor. No, it's, you don't die because you don't go to the doctor. You die because you have a disease. Now, maybe going to the doctor can prevent you from dying, but the reason you're dying is because you have a disease. Same thing is true with Jesus. The reason you're going to go to hell is because you're a sinner, not because you haven't accepted Jesus. But if you do accept Jesus, if you do repent, you're going to the great physician who can prevent your eternal death. C.S. Lewis put it best. He said, look, in the end, there's only two kinds of people. 
Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. So the bottom line to all this, does evil disprove God? No, it actually shows God does exist because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. What's the purpose of evil? God has many purposes. Many of them are to cause us to get better, to become more like Jesus rather than more like the demons. And God's solution to evil is he takes it upon himself and he offers it to us the free gift of salvation if we repent and want it. Now, I went through this material very quickly. If you want the entire PowerPoint presentation to this, text the word why evil, not two words, one word, why evil, no quotes on it, to 44222. I'm going to send you a PDF of this entire PowerPoint presentation so you can look at it at your leisure. And then there are books in the bookstore. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist stealing from God. In fact, there's a DVD set out there called Stealing from God, which goes through this topic and all the other ones in crimes that I mentioned earlier. So if you want to go further there, you can. And I want to point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know. All right? So... Where was God when you go through difficulty? Where is he? Well, originally he was hanging on a cross to take evil upon himself. And then he proved that he could do that because he rose from the dead. So as the worship team comes, let us pray that if any of us haven't accepted the free gift, and have grown in Christ, that today would be the day we'd make a decision to do that. Heavenly Father, we pray if there's someone here who has not accepted your free gift that you provide us, or if there's someone here who has not been in the game, we've been sitting on the sidelines, that today would be the day that they would decide to follow you wholeheartedly. We know that evil exists everywhere and you are the only answer to the problem of evil. That's what the whole Christian story is. So give us the courage to do what is right, to repent, to accept what you've done, and then to live as a disciple for him in this dark and dying world. In the name of Jesus who died for us, amen. Amen.